But we're in the book of John. John chapter 1. I want to start this morning right around verse 14. Although we've covered verse 14, I think, fairly well. But 16, 17, and 18 are really kind of a, um, a little bit more of a commentary on verse 14. But we're finishing up what is called the prologue. And prologue is not a divinely inspired title. It's just a title that uh, biblical study people uh, gave. And it kind of stuck because it's been out there for years and years. But the prologue is, is the introductory part of this wonderful gospel. John chapter 1, verse 4. Um, we'll show everybody that. Let's not keep it a secret. Hang on a second here. This is what uh, Jack suggested. Um, boy, so, but uh, thanks, Jack. Uh, we can't take you anywhere. Uh, <laughs> you were supposed to keep an eye on him. But anyway, all right, it's good to have you back, Jack. But uh, no, seriously. <laughs> but, so, John chapter 1, the prologue is really kind of this introductory statement, and it's, it's chocked full of incredible theological statements. Um, even in the passage that we look at this morning, it's chocked full of incredible theological statements, but, I, but I'm om- I really want to hit this more from the application side, probably the more from the theological side this morning. So picking this up, in verse 14 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, and I'm going to read to you this morning out of the New American Standard, um, although I also have in my notes, uh, and I'll explain in a minute, I'm probably going to read to you out of another version as well, uh, and I'll explain that when we get there. But it says, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and called out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who is coming after me has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. For his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who was in the arms or bosom, or at the side of, depending on your translation, of the Father, he has explained him. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts as we look into this passage this morning. You would help us to understand, help us to hear your voice, help us to apply your word to our hearts. Help us to grasp your fullness that John says we have all received. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. As I mentioned, 16, 17, really 16, 17, and 18 is a commentary. On, on verse 14 where it talks about the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is the only son from the father or the only unique one from the father. Uh, son is interjected. The, the word son is not in this particular passage, but for some reason the New American Standard translators decided to put it there, so I read it. <clears throat> Full of grace and truth. And then it goes on to say in verse 16, for we have 
for, for of his fullness we have all received. And grace upon grace. And, and this, this fascinated me because <clears throat> as I thought about this, what is John talking about when he says we have received his fullness? And then says it's grace upon grace. What is he referring to? What, what, is, he, is he talking about his total life experience? And he may, he may very well be talking about his total life experience. Jeremiah tells us that, that the Lord knew us when we were in our mother's womb. And, and, that, and I believe that, that, that God has his hand upon our lives, all of our lives, including the pre-Christian part of our lives. That, that God who knows the end from the beginning and, and uh, keeps his hand upon his children. Some of us um, are probably here today because of the hand of God was upon us. Saving us from accidents, saving us from overdoses, saving us from different things that we might have done to, to try to end our life. And yet God has always had his hand upon us, I believe. And, and John, probably talking about the beginning, the entirety of his life, but the thing about John which is so unique about him, he received personally from the Lord Jesus Christ while the Lord was here in the flesh and continued to receive personally from the Lord Jesus Christ after the Lord went to the cross, died, resurrected, ascended into heaven. And so he, he's had these, the unique experience of, of being able to, to see Jesus. I mean, let me just kind of tip this over a little bit to be able to see God. Now, it says that no one has seen God at any time. I'll get to that, hopefully. But John saw him. John, 1 John says, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have heard, that which we have handled with our hands, concerning the word of life. And so he had this incre- incredible opportunity living with him for a period of time of somewhere over three years, traveling together, eating together, sleeping together, ministering together. John says that we, as plural, we received his fullness. Not just I have received his fullness. And, and <clears throat> what's interesting about this word receive, it's in the aorist tense, aorist active, which means a snapshot, often translated past tense, but the Greek doesn't have past tense like the English has past tense. It's a snapshot of a situation. It means active. It means the person that is being talked about, that is, he's talking about we, us, are the ones who have been the recipients of his fullness. And so as I think about this, 
what is John really saying here? Now, is John simply writing this from the vantage point of being at the end of his life, which I believe John wrote this very late. It's probably one of the last writings. There's a debate about whether he wrote Revelation or John first, and I don't want to get into that this morning. But as he's merely referring to the fact that he has been in the faith for years and years and years and years and now has found his fullness. He might be. But then why the we? Why is it plural instead of singular? Or is it possible... Is it possible that he's talking about each and every one of us? That we receive his fullness from the moment that we are born again of the Spirit. Now, I understand this whole process of sanctification, right? Which takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime to become like Christ, to be conformed into his image. But he who began a good work in you, Philippians chapter 1, is faithful to complete that work. But when you prayed and received Christ, did you receive a partial payment? You received a down payment of the Holy Spirit, the earnest money, if you will, of that which is to come, But did you receive all of Christ, the Holy Spirit, God, all that you needed at the time? Or were you lacking when you got saved? Were you lacking after you got saved? See, this is, to me, it's problematic, but at the same time, there's some deep theological implications here. R.A. Torrey, I believe, wrote a book called Fullness of Power. Talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Believing it to be a second blessing. There are others who believe that we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit when we're saved. That there is no real second blessing. Your mileage may vary. I'm not going to go down that road today. I'll let you have some fun with that on your own. I know that the real issue as far as me receiving the fullness of Christ is not so much of the Holy Spirit. It is not so much of the fullness of Christ that I have. But the real question is, how much of you the Holy Spirit has? How much of you has received and, and, and allows the Holy Spirit to do his work so that you might participate in the fullness of Christ. Follow where I'm going on this? It goes back to that, that wonderful Pentecostal saying that I, I do. I love this saying. To be under the spout where the glory comes out. And Because the thing is, that implies what? That implies a choice. 
do you have all the fullness of Christ? And how do we get this? We receive it by faith. And the thing is, when I was born again, I only, I barely knew what I was doing. I was eight years old. And I barely knew John 3.16 from John 16.3. I didn't understand the Trinity. I didn't fully understand the idea of baptism. It was explained to me, and I understood it the best I could when I was baptized. But, but think about this. Some of you, like myself, when you were, you were saved at a very young age, Barely knowing what we were doing, and yet the God of the universe honors that commitment anyway. Some of you were on a severe losing streak when you got saved. That's just a nice way to say it. How's that? (laughs) The God of the universe honors you anyway and meets you where you are at, and he imparts to you his fullness that you have received. So do we experience this fullness? Are we capable of experiencing his fullness? So I'm getting into this weird thing where I like questions more than answers these days. I don't know. But are you, are you capable of his fullness? And, and often it is, his sanctifying work in my life doesn't make me feel very full. It makes me very well aware of my deficiencies and my sense of emptiness. Or, I don't mean fully empty, maybe half full. Or, because I'm a pessimist, half empty. How's that? And I think often it is that the fullness of God is just something that we do not fully take into account that it is really something that we really have been given. It is something that we have received and no doubt received by faith when we chose to commit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we chose to trust in him. There was an incredible spiritual transaction, spiritual but much more real than anything that we can touch or see today an incredible spiritual transaction whereby we were transformed. We became a new creature. All things passed away. Behold, all things become new. We become members of the kingdom of God. We are ransomed. We are rescued. We are taken out of the kingdom of darkness. And now we walk in his marvelous light. And often it is for a number of reasons, one being the spiritual warfare that you and I and everyone who is a Christian encounters even if they are unaware of it. We don't access his fullness. See, because that sanctifying work does not feel full. You know what I mean by the sanctifying work. Often it is that 
the Lord's sanctifying in our work, excuse me, often it is, it's been a hot week, right? The Lord's sanctifying work in our lives happens through trials, through difficulties. If I can be really blunt, things that just irritate me. You get irritated? Is it just me? I know some of you get irritated, trust me. And often it is, those are the hammers and the chisels and the sandpaper. What other kind of tool I want to use? The chainsaws? On our hearts that the Lord uses to conform us into the image of Christ so that we might recognize, realize, access the fullness of Christ to a greater level in our lives. Now, to be honest with you, I don't like that. I don't. I really would like to go to bed at night, say the Lord's Prayer, wake up the next morning, and be a better Christian than I was the day before. Doesn't that sound good? Sounds great to me. But to use a line out of AA, the problem is that God put into our lives people, places, and things that we have to navigate and negotiate and deal with. And sometimes people are difficult, places are difficult, things are difficult. 1 Peter chapter 5. Remember, Peter and John were sidekicks, okay? So that's why we may be going to Peter quite a bit as we go through this book. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10 says, But may the God of all grace, see, I'm going toward grace. I haven't opened that, I haven't gone there yet. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory, by Christ Jesus, after you had suffered for a while. Now, I read that, and so I went to find the whiteout. You guys have, you get anybody use whiteout? I don't use whiteout anymore, but um, I wanted to whiten that out of my Bible. But it says, after you've suffered for a while, Perfect, establish, and strengthen you. After you have suffered for a while, the Lord Jesus will perfect, establish, and strengthen you. I wish that he would perfect, establish, and strengthen me so that I would, have to, I would be able to go through those trials. But I, I'm becoming more convinced that, that, that the trials in and of themselves are these incredible tools, but it, it, we, we, we act like, we talk like that, that they're only valuable if we negotiate them well. Is that what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5? Boy, I got through that trial. Hey, did you hear about the trial I just went through? And how good I did. And then we make it spiritual. Oh, the, the Lord was with me. 
but we walk through it together. You're running on the precipice of the edge of spiritual pride when you go there. Sometimes the most valuable thing that God can do is put you flat on your face. Because it's at that time that he really has your attention and he really has softened the clay enough where he can really rework it into the image that he desires to work it into. Isn't this fun? No, it's not. But it's the process that God uses to allow us to access the fullness of Christ by which we already have. Who wants to sign up for that? But there are, are really, in my understanding of reading the scripture, there, no, there are no other alternatives. And God's sanctifying work does not happen any other way. And such as it is. And the, it... And there are times I've gone through trials and I'm just like, you know, I just want to sleep through it. And Lord, wake me up when it's over. I want to numb it out. I come home. Turn on the tube. Numb it out. Do whatever I do to numb it out. Sleep through it. And often it is you're prolonging the trial, I think because you have not availed yourself to that which the Lord Christ Jesus is attempting to teach you. You guys want me to be done yet? Let's keep going. I'm going back to the New King James. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. I touched on this briefly last Sunday. The whole point of that little phrase, grace for grace, while the word charis is important, grace, the real point in this particular phrase is the word for. Grace for grace. The word anti, A-N-T-I in the Greek, what doesn't mean against, all right, that's an A, by the way, but anyway, it, it, it's a, pre, a preposition that's used. In the Greek language, it was used for an exchange of something. Like when you have an exchange for a sale. It, it's the idea, too, that we see, we see in like Hebrews chapter 12, where, where, where it says, for the, for the joy set before him, he did what? He endured the cross, despised the pain. That's a contrast. That, that there is an exchange going on there. One of the commentators referred to this as almost uh, as an Old Testament example of what John is talking about here was the fact that manna was given to the children of Israel six days a week. Every day, except for one, they would go out and they would get new manna. Kind of an exchange. They, they had harvested the old manna. They had ate the, the manna for the day before. Now they go out in the morning and they get it again. And, and it's, 
it's this idea of this undeserved, undeserved blessing from God. An undeserved gift from God. Unmerited favor. That's what I was looking for. Now let's take this back to this idea of trials. Unmerited favor? I'm going through trials and this is my unmerited favor from you, God? It is. Because the God of the universe thinks so much of you that he takes you, to use the illustration in the book of Jeremiah, where he takes you as the lump of clay and he puts you on the, on the wheel and he begins to form you. And, you know, part of me in, in my mind right now as I'm speaking, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I must be out of my mind telling you guys this. But the reality is that the trials from the Lord are part of his grace. It really is. And, and do, you, do you see how antithetical it is how God operates in his economy and how he shapes humanity and how he deals with his children that is so contrary to that of the world? This idea of receiving this divine favor, this idea of being in a chain status that we talked about in the book of Romans months ago now. This grace that we have been given. And, and as we use that grace up, as we use that grace up, what does the Lord do? He comes along and he supplies us with more grace. I, I, I think he does it really in such a way that often it is that we don't even think about it. We don't even think about it. Oh, last week I thought about how gracious God is that I'm not living under an overpass. Or under a Ponderosa right now. And, and yet, we, 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 I think at times we just fail to recognize the goodness uh, uh, that he has for us. And And... Again, this goes back to what we, we looked at. Um, about the, 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 that Jesus is full of grace and truth, verse 14. And as I thought about this earlier last week, I thought the, the, the main truth that we have to really understand is that God is full of truth. Or excuse me, he's also full of grace. He's also full of grace. And, and grace by its very nature is a very unbalanced thing where God gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. And often it is, I think we like, we, we like for God to be gracious to us, but we want that truth element in there. And doggone it, it's true. And this, you've got to live by the truth. If you're not living by the truth, then God's going to get you. And, and all of a sudden we start to nullify the grace of God in our own hearts. And we see those people. What's always interesting is when I do something stupid, like forget my glasses on a Sunday morning and I drive back, I start seeing how the, other part, how the world lives, what they're doing today instead of being here. 
And it, it, it just, it's an interesting how, how God speaks to me at the, during those times. Now, I'm not recommending it, okay, but anyway. But, but it, it, I think we get into such a mindset that, that I love for God to be gracious to me, but you're not living by the truth, so I don't want God to be gracious to you. That's not grace upon grace. You know, there's a, an old T-shirt. It's like a bumper sticker. I hate bumper sticker theology, but I'm going to use it anyway. You know that old T-shirt with the, with the skull and the crossbones and, the, and, and it's a, a military thing and it says, kill them all, let God sort them out, right? I never wore one, by the way. But maybe we should love them all or grace them all and let God sort them out. Maybe that's what we really ought to do. This idea of grace for grace, grace upon grace, uh, and, and, and which is the part of his fullness. It's the expression of his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Was the law gracious? I think it was, personally. But what I believe he is telling us here in verse 17 is the full recognition, the full realization of what grace and truth is about comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said the bulk of the book is written of him, right? So while we were given the law, the problem with the law, the problem with the law, the problem is not the law. The law is, law is holy, righteous, and good, Romans says, right? The problem is not the law. The problem is us. Because when we find out what the law is, we want to see how much far further we can push the envelope. It, it's, it's innate in each and every one of us. You know, it's like the people who I talk to, and I, and I know one's told me this in a long time, and I thank the Lord Jesus Christ that they have it, but they talk about, well, I drive 56 miles an hour. And I'm like, for, what's wrong with you? For goodness sake, you're going to do it, do it right. But anyway, um, it's, in, it's innate in our thinking that we are just, we like to break the law. Pushing the boundaries, testing the limits. The Lord takes that type of mentality and he's gracious to it and he's truthful to it. And the understanding, the very first truth that we need to understand really is given to us in Verse 1 of this, of this uh, incredible book where it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And they realize that He is a gracious God. And the thing is, the thing is about God's grace, is, and I can almost see it in, in my mind as I'm talking about this, some of us will leave here and we'll, we'll say, Okay, God, I want you to be more gracious to me. Now, you don't, don't tell me that that hasn't entered into some of your thoughts this morning. But often it is when we do that, right? 
I want you to be more gracious to me, God, and this is how I want it done. I mean, even for a passing month, I do it from time to time. God, I want you to be gracious. Let me tell you how it's done. Then who's God? I'll just leave that with, I'm just, I'll leave that with some of you. Okay, I'm with you on that one. I have that trouble too. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 14 tells us that sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under the law. All the law can do is point out your deficiencies, point out your sin. For you are not under the law, but you are under grace. The law essentially brings you the bad news. The grace of God brings you the good news. Again, the law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. Paul talks about this. We looked at it in Romans, too, that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. He says that also in the book of Galatians. Verse 18, and we'll be done. I am, I'm going to read it to you out of what's called the New English Translation, which I think is a very good translation. It's online, netbible.org, if you're interested. It says, no one has seen God. Oh, excuse me. No one has ever seen God. The one, the only one, himself God, who was closest in fellowship with the Father, has made God known. I'm getting a look. I'm going to read it again. No one has ever seen God. Okay, that's the first statement. The only one, because that's the word monogenerous, we looked at that and where, where it said the only begotten. The only one, himself God. So the only one is himself God, who is closest who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. Has made God known. I want to read it to you now, the New New King James, but it kind of muddies the water. This is a very hard verse to translate. But when it says, no one has seen God at any time, there's a, uh, this is often viewed as the God in verse 18 is referring to the Father, which it might be. It might be. But what is the context of John 1? The Word was God. So then John says, no one has seen God, who is the Word, at any time. Is this a rough one for you this morning? Good. I hope you, I'm glad you're awake. Good. Or you, I'll get it online. You can re- listen again. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Exodus chapter 33, where Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And what did God say to him? You cannot see my face and live. 
So it very well could be that verse 18 is talking about the Father and the attributes of the Father are revealed to us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Him and the God in the flesh. That makes sense. That's probably what it means. But I think there's another way to look at this. The early fathers did. The Nicene fathers the Cappadocian fathers did. And they're looking at this and they're saying, no one has seen God at any time. Well, First John, that which we've seen with our eyes, we read the testimony of John the Apostle who saw God in the flesh. So, the Cappadocians translate, understood this, their view on this, was it's not talking about seeing God with the physical eye. But it's talking about this idea of attempting to understand God spiritually. To see God spiritually with the spiritual eye. This idea of, of, of trying to reconcile and understanding that the, the creator of the universe Because, and I was talking, uh, been talking back and forth with, with one of the guys uh, looking at some, a particular passage, and, and I thought, and he wrote me back and he said, the more I study, the more questions I have, right? And I thought, good. Because I'm that way. The more I study, the more questions I have. And, and God is so far beyond me. He's so far, I just said it again, right? He's so far beyond me, he, he extends beyond my capacity to even understand who he is. And how can he exist from eternity past into his eternity future, dwelling outside of time at the same time? The Cappadocians understood, and they went to this idea of Moses on Mount Sinai. So they go back to this. Moses on Mount Sinai in the thick darkness of the cloud. It was in the thick darkness of the cloud where God, where Moses was able to understand because God revealed himself to Moses. And so I think this refers as much to this idea of seeing him spiritually because, with, because if you want to know what God is like, take a look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Because he was the one who was in the bosom or at the, in the arms or at the side of the Father. So it's a really interesting play on words that I read to you out of the New English translation. Recognizing the deity of the Logos who is there at the side of the Father and it is the Logos, the reasoning, the expression, the words, the, 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 the thoughts even behind the words that reveals to humanity who God is. That's why the New American Standard Version says he has explained him. Or it says in the New King James, 
he has declared him. In other words, without Jesus, we really can't spiritually grasp who God is. This God who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. This God who spoke to Moses as one speaks to his friend. First appearing to him where? In the desert. And through the form of what? Remember? Exodus 3. A burning bush. But he heard an audible voice. Because I also believe, and and I thought about this too. Abraham. Did Abraham see God? Genesis 18 clearly says that the Lord appeared to Abraham. Yahweh appears to Abraham. Three men come and visit Abraham before they destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. One of them was none other than a pre-incarnate appearing, in my opinion, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the one who reveals to us a spiritual understanding of who God is. Which take, I'm going to be done. Which takes me right back to the fullness. The fullness of God that we have received. Grace upon or grace for faith. Grace, excuse me. And so the more we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to do this work in our life, the more we are able to receive the fullness that we already have. And in receiving that fullness, we are able to see the nature of God even greater. Does that make sense? Tough one this morning, but nonetheless, I think incredibly value, valuable for us to grab a hold of.